something happens that's quite funny to watch um, in young boys, especially. Um, it's interesting to watch as boys have their perspectives begin to uh, shift when it comes to girls. Now, maybe some of you uh, in the room have adult children, and you can attest to this. You've watched it happen even with your own children, uh, perhaps. Desmond's still in that age when you uh, talk about girls. He sort of just giggles. And uh, when you talk about marriage, he says, as serious as he can, well, I'm going to marry mommy. And I have to explain to him that mommy is already married and that uh, she's married to me and he can't have mommy. And, uh, and so he says, well, then I'll marry Ryland, my sister. And uh, just kind of cute, right? But then I have to explain to him that we can't do that either. You can't marry your sister because we don't live in Alabama. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh. I'm kidding. But uh, when they get a little older, maybe around high school, something begins to change and they, they get their first crush on that little girl and then suddenly begin to see things change about them, right? All of a sudden he starts washing the car maybe, especially as of, of, of driving age, maybe even a couple times a week, or uh, he starts uh, wearing cologne. Um, and, uh, and it's probably that aerosol can stuff that you buy at Walmart that's like two or three bucks, and he wears so much of it, it singes the hairs in your nostrils. Uh, maybe starts washing uh, and caring about what clothes he wears, you know, wants to look nice, and maybe starts fixing his hair without mom having to say, hey, go in there and, and comb your hair. Why does that happen? It happens because his affections are changing. He has a new love. And uh, even though parents may have told him a hundred times to wash the car or to freshen up or to, to, to comb his hair so he doesn't look so slouchy and, and, uh, and, and, and terrible at school, it, now he, he does it without having to be told. He, 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 ne- he doesn't need his parents telling him to do those things on a repeated basis. He just wants to do them because he's experienced a change in his feelings and his loves and his desires and that sort of thing happens with us, except only a, on, a, on a greater scale when we meet Jesus. And when he becomes the Lord of our lives, our affections change, our desires change, our loves change. Old desires, old loves, old interests are replaced with new ones when we're born again. It doesn't mean that we're going to uh, hate doing the things that we did for recreation or entertainment or our families or those sorts of things anymore. It's just that our new love in Christ supersedes those things. And those things pale in comparison When we are new creatures in Jesus, we experience a new love for Jesus that wasn't there before. We have a love for his church that wasn't there before. We have a love for his mission that wasn't there before. And today in our text, we'll see some converts in Ephesus that illustrate that dynamic. These Ephesians, uh, to to give you a little information about who they were, they were known for their love of many things. We'll see some of them even in the text this morning. They loved sport, and they loved theater, and they loved idols. Especially, as we've seen in the text, their famous goddess, Artemis. They loved social standing and wealth. And Paul comes to town and he preaches the gospel of Jesus to them. And the Holy Spirit opens the eyes and hearts of many people in this city. And they experience a change in their affections. They experience things changing in their own hearts that begin to take place in their city and change their city. Ephesus was a city that was known for, uh, for travel, for destination, and tourists would come and, and, and visit this city with these amazing sites, and one of the places they would stop, perhaps maybe the most famous place they would stop, was the Temple of Artemis, uh, also known as Diana. You may have heard that name uh, in Scripture or in history. 
she was the pagan goddess of fertility. And people who worshipped Artemis believed that her image, literally the, the stone that she was made out of, this idol was made out of, had fallen from the heavens and was housed inside this temple. And, uh, and what we see here in the text that we're going to study this morning is a major disturbance when Paul gets to town and he begins preaching Jesus. I mean, think about this. Paul is preaching uh, about a risen, a crucified, dead, and risen Savior, Lord, God. And, uh, and she, this idol, Artemis, simply fell from the heavens and landed in a stone building. And so objectively speaking, I mean, removing our opinions from it, objectively speaking, that's a far more powerful thing to claim. That, that the God Paul's worshiping died, was crucified, and rose again. Artemis has nothing that can match that claim. So in verse 23, we see, we'll study this in more detail in a moment, we see a major disturbance about the way, that's the way of Christ, the, the walk of Christ, the claims of the gospel, a major disturbance resulted. And what we've already seen is that there are actually several disturbances. Uh, if you go back to what we were studying last week in verses 8 and 9, we're still chapter 19, talking chapter 19 here, uh, we saw a disturbance at the synagogue, right? Paul's preaching among the Jews, and the Jews didn't accept this truth about Jesus as the Messiah, and there was a disturbance there. And so we went and started teaching next door, at the, at the, at the house next door. And, so, and then in verse 10, you see a, a disturbance around Ephesus as Paul is sharing among all Asians for two years. This sort of thing happens. In verses 11 through 19, you see disturbances among the demonic realm, the spiritual realm. Uh, as spiritual warfare is taking place, there's a disturbance among even the demonic. In verses 23 through 41, we see one final disturbance in this city, and it happens at the, the city center in the marketplace among the, 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 the artisans there, and, uh, and it disrupts the social customs of this place, of, of Ephesus. And so what, uh, what you see when you read chapters 19 and 20 of Acts alongside of Ephesians, remember the book of Ephesians is Paul's letter back to these believers, right? When he's moved on, he'll write them a letter. You have it in your Bible. It's the book of Ephesians. What you see when you read these two chapters of Acts alongside of that letter is that there is a disruption, but that disruption is a result of God working among his people in such a, certain, in such a way that they're affections, their loves, their desires are changing. It's not that they're starting a riot or starting a fight or, or a mob taking over the city. It's that their loves change. People who had no love for Christ began to love Christ, and that had an impact on their culture. And so let's walk through this text. Let's see what it looks like for a group of people in a place where Jesus has not been known, not been named, to begin to love Jesus and, and serve Jesus, and then to have everything in their lives reoriented towards Jesus and the impact that that makes on their city. So this is the question I'm asking as we study the text. I'll have uh, five points for us this morning, but it's sort of this idea. What does it look like? What does it look like for a group of people, say Poplar Spring, say larger than that, our community, Bunn, Franklin County? What does it look like when a group of people begin to have their loves reoriented? What kind of impact does that make? And what are the conditions surrounding that, right? So here's uh, the first thing that we see in the text. Uh, the sort of change occurs uh, only when God's word is unleashed to do its work. That sort of shift and change in our culture and our community will only happen when God's word is unleashed to do its work job. Look at verse 10. It says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So the word of the Lord's being proclaimed for this two-year period. That's the ministry Paul's doing. And lest we think that's a one-and-done mention in our text this morning, skip down to verse 20. We're going to come back and fill in the gaps in a moment, but I want you to see this in the text. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. 
One of the biggest, I think, failures of the, of, of the church today, of Christians today, is that we underestimate the power and effectiveness of the Word of God. We, we want to come up with these strategies and different ways to impact the culture and lostness around us. And we, and we do it not only maybe on purpose, but we minimize the Word of God and the impact that the Word, the preached gospel, preached Word of God has on a community. And when this awakening took place in Ephesus, it happened because the Word, the Scriptures, the gospel was being proclaimed. You see the way that Luke writes this part of Acts. He puts these brackets in the text. Verse 10, all the residents of Asia heard the word. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord continued to increase. What he's doing is, 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 is Luke is showing us that Paul's ministry in Ephesus was preaching the word. While it may have been other things, it was preaching the word. And it's, it's, if it's not clear enough to us here with these two brackets that bracket off this text in, in Ephesus, uh, look, look at verse 26. You see another... Uh, clue or hint to what this looked like in Paul's ministry. It says this, and you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. This is a statement from Demetrius. We'll meet him in a moment in our text. He's a silversmith. He's an opponent to Paul. He's actually opposing Paul in in this speech. And what he's doing, he's summarizing Paul's ministry In other words, he's saying, here's what Paul is doing wrong. (laughs) But in doing that, he actually shows us what Paul was doing right, which is preaching the word. Paul's persuasion is what led to this disturbance. I'm sure, and we'll see some even this morning in our text, there were miracles and signs and wonders that accompanied the, the ministry of Paul that affirmed the gospel message that he was preaching. But the power... The, the change, the affections being reoriented, reoriented came as a result of the word being taught. It's clear to show us this multiple times in our text. This is not just a unique aspect of, of Paul's ministry in Ephesus. This is what we've seen all along in Paul's ministry. If you go back through Acts, I'll give you a few places just to note this in Paul's ministry. Chapter 2, verse 41. Chapter 6, verse 7. Chapter 12, verse 24. Chapter 13, verse 49, all of these places emphasizing the ministry of the word, the preaching of the gospel. And so if we want to see God awaken hearts in our neighbors, in our community, in our own family members, it must happen as the word of God is being explained to them. Connecting not just the the stories of the Bible, but what the Bible's preaching. That we're lost and in need of a Savior and Christ came and died in our place and rose again. The gospel, the word of God being preached. Michael and I were talking this week earlier and in the office, uh, just studying through this text and wrestling with, with this text and the application for us. And I asked Michael, I said, what, 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 what description, right? What, what word would people use to, what's the first one that comes to people's minds when they think about Poplar Spring Baptist Church? Like, like there, there are probably numerous ways that you, could, that you could think about our church and describe our church. But for those of us that are members, maybe been here for decades, or for those of us that are new to Poplar Spring, or maybe this is your first time, and you, you just heard about Poplar Spring through the community. Somebody told you about this church, and, and so you thought you'd visit and check it out. What, what's, the, what's the one thing that, that maybe we would first think about when we think of Poplar Spring Baptist Church? What are we known for? My grandmother, uh, she used to have this way where she would... She would be describing her church to someone or maybe a church that she visited on a vacation. She just was in a different city, so she went to a different church that day on vacation. And she would be describing that church to someone, and she'd have these little one-liners to kind of sum them up. You probably have used maybe some of them yourself, like, well, that's a mission-minded church. Or, uh, or that, that, that's, a, that's a church with a ton of young families. There's a lot of 
young life in that church. Or, or maybe there's a, that's a Bible-believing church, right? What are, what are we known by? What's our identity, church family? I'll tell you what it must be. It may be other things, and there may be other things that, 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 that I pray that we would be known for, but what we must be known for is being founded upon the, the Word of God, grounded in the Scriptures. Everything we do and say must flow from this book. We're a Word-oriented people, that we preach the Word, we pray the Word, we teach the Word, we live out the Word in small group and in, in community. We have no hope or ability to affect this world eternally, separated or, or cutting ourselves off from the scriptures of God. I want to be careful to clarify here, church family. I'm not talking about just preaching the word, like in this, in this moment, someone standing behind this pulpit and preaching the word, but uh, that, that's part of it. I don't want to minimize that. That's, that's a primary part of it. But what I'm talking about is, is you, believers, born-again saints, you as the church family, meeting Christ in the Word daily, meeting Christ in the Scriptures and knowing Him from His Word and helping others to know Him and see Him in the Scriptures. Like that sort of uh, Word-oriented lives that we believe the Word of God, we're confident in the Word of God because that's where we meet Christ and we see Him. Let this passage in the ministry of Paul here in Ephesus increase our confidence in the the, the power of the proclaimed, studied, cherished, memorized Word of God. That's how he shows himself to us. We keep explaining it. We keep applying it. Your elders, elders commit to making sure that it's, it's coming from this pulpit, that we're not up here just giving uh, some, some life lessons and maybe earthly wisdom, but that the Word of God is being preached. And you commit to making it happen in growth groups and small groups and Sunday school classes and around your dinner tables and around the table at lunch and, and, and in coffee shops, that the Word is what we're, what we're living out in community together. So awakening comes as God's Word is unleashed to do its work. But second, this sort of, of, of new love, of reorienting our hearts and loves that sort of awakening and revival comes when God demonstrates his power. That's the second thing we see in our text. Look at verse 11 with me. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Luke, the, the writer of Acts, tells us something incredible about the wonders and the miracles that accompanied Paul's preaching in the Gospels here, that he's proclaiming the Gospel. And as he does this, some incredible miracles are happening that affirm the truth that he's preaching. And sadly, passages like this have been misapplied and abused in the church for years. Religious swindlers that will come on TV and find gullible viewers and say, hey, if you'll buy this prayer hanky from me, I've prayed over it, I'll send it to you, and it'll... Heal you. Order now for $99.99 plus shipping and handling. Right? Like that sort of thing is an abuse of this text. Buy this miracle water from the Jordan River and, and it'll heal like Jesus healed in the New Testament. Or buy this prayer rug and you can be like Kathy. Kathy bought one of our prayer rugs and she prayed on it and she received a free trip to Hawaii and a raise at her job in the same week. Like this kind of peddling healing and miracles is, is, is in no way what's intended to come from this passage. This passage wasn't meant to be applied in that way. And we have to remember, Luke here is describing historical events. He's not prescribing the way that the church should uh, attempt to mimic and, and, and model the ministry of Paul. And again, look at the text clearly. Paul's no one special here. He's the instrument that God chose to use. He's actually not even actively walking around handing out these face cloths and prescribing himself what they can do for the people. 
the text in, in, in Acts, Luke is emphatic, verse 11, that it was God who was doing these extraordinary miracles in the midst of Paul preaching the word. And, and, and Luke is clear to make that out to us. He also makes sure that we notice that it was extraordinary. It's the word the, the text used. It was an extraordinary miracle, even in the apostolic period. What does extraordinary mean? It was extraordinary. It means that it wasn't ordinary, even among them. And so we have this period of time that we're living in now when the, the New Testament is written. We have the full word of God. We have the authority of God's word. It's been widely communicated. Paul shows up to places and preaches, and there is no New Testament. There is no proclamation of the gospel that's preceded him. There is no belief. There is no church there formed in Ephesus. And so as he preaches, God is gracious to uh, do some incredible miracles and signs and wonders amongst him, and, and, and it affirms the gospel that he's preaching. We live in a very different time. We live in a time that we do have the word. We have the final authority of God. We have the Bible, the way in which God affirms the truth of the gospel. We have the church. We have a body of believers that have been uh, born again, that have new hearts as a result of the miracle of regeneration that affirms the preaching of the gospel today. That doesn't mean that God has stopped doing miracles. We don't teach that God has stopped doing miracles. God can uh, do a miracle anywhere, anytime, in any way that he wants to. It's just that we don't expect it like this in the ministry of Paul, and we certainly don't demand it like this in the ministry of Paul. In the case before us in Acts, we have a city that's steeped in superstition, interested in magic and, 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 and incantations and that sort of thing, and God kindly condescends to their level to show them his sovereign power in a way that will get their attention, draw them to Jesus, and they hear the preaching of Paul. Many Christians today want to see that sort of miracle every day, want to live out that kind of, of belief every day, but little, little of the typical Christian life involves this visible display of the miraculous power of God. Most of the Christian life for us today looks like submitting to the revealed will of God in the Scriptures, walking by the Spirit, by the help of the Spirit, going through everyday life and, and the, the job of parenting or the job of being a spouse or the job of vocation or the job of, of being a citizen of this community and living out the gospel that's been revealed to us in the Scriptures. That's what the Christian life looks like today. And so we must have a balance here, a balanced view of miracles. We don't rule them out. God can do whatever He wants, whenever He wants. But we don't assume that God is still working or that God isn't working when we don't see him do miracles like this every day. We have the greatest miracle of all, by far, and that's the new birth. That's the new heart, that God would take a heart of stone that has no love for him and make a heart of flesh, a heart that loves Christ and pursues Christ. God raised Jesus from the dead. We can trust that the greatest miracle of all is that one day we'll walk out of our tombs too. We're resurrected life, we'll have new bodies, we'll be remade, and God will, uh, will raise us from the dead as he has Christ. The greatest miracle of all. So application here, don't buy and sell handkerchiefs uh, claiming that they have some spiritual authority or power. But do keep trusting Jesus who gives you a new heart. That's the greatest miracle that we see in, in all the world. And so, uh, well, we've seen already that God uh, brings revival. Awakening comes when the word of God is unleashed. We also see that it comes as God demonstrates his power. And then thirdly, we see that, that revival, change, awakening happens when people worship the name of Jesus. Continue reading with me in the text. Look at verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to inv invoke the name of G the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, uh-oh, <laughs> that's never good. Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, 
but who are you? And the man in whom the evil spirit, uh, and the man in whom was the evil spirit, leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So you have these seven sons of Sceva. And to me, I told the, we had a, the football team over for lunch on Friday and shared a, a, a quick devotion from this text. And I told them, that this, this name, Seven Sons of Sceva, it sounds either like an old western or a heavy metal rock band. And I'm surprised that somebody hasn't taken this name already. Uh, and probably for good reason, because it, uh, it's, it's not, it doesn't end too well for them. Either way, though, their biological dad is a, a Jewish chief priest. Some scholars have speculated that, uh, that maybe he claimed this name for himself, and he wasn't actually a chief priest. Others have suggested that he was a chief priest, but that all seven of these sons turned away from traditional Judaism and began to practice this uh, exorcism and, and that sort of thing. Either way, uh, considering the text, considering Ephesus where they're doing this, it, it, it makes sense. They're lost. They don't know the Lord. They want to do something and, and be involved in this culture in a way that would uh, win them some merit, some favor, maybe even financial reward. And so uh, Ephesians are attracted to this sort of thing. They love the theatrics. They love the entertainment. And, uh, and they're also superstitious. So a sorcerer, an exorcist like this, is the perfect combination. Dinner and a show, right? A, a healing and a, and, a, and a blessing comes along with it. And, and so they're doing this. They're, they're borrowing names. This was a common thing they would do. They would borrow a name in which is associated some sort of power or superstition, and they would attempt to do something to mimic that and and to look powerful themselves. And so that's what they're doing. They observe Paul's ministry. They decide, hey, we want to cash in on on Paul's ministry, and so we'll just use the name that that Paul seems to be using, which is Jesus. And it worked out for him, so it'll probably work out for us. And and that's clearly not the case. In the the text, it it clearly backfired on them. As the one with the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I'm not sure. I mean, the text doesn't tell us, just reading this, I'm not sure why their clothes came off. Like, that's kind of a strange feature in this text to me. Like, I've watched a lot of fights in my life, either like boxing or UFC on TV or even in the schoolyard as a kid. Saw a lot of fights growing up, as, as did you probably. And I've never seen clothes come off in a fight. That just seems a really strange feature to this fight. Alistair Begg actually says they, they would have been better known instead of the seven sons of Sceva, the, the seven streakers of Sceva. But for some reason, they're out of their clothes by the end of this fight. The point is that they're trying to add Jesus' name to their hocus pocus, right? To their, uh, their, their show, and it leaves them utterly humiliated. Now that, that's the takeaway. Uh, in this process, one of the demons testifies to the power of Jesus, and that the power of Jesus working through Paul says, I know, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? And the, the demons here are essentially saying, I, I know I'm whipped when it comes to Jesus. I've seen his power. We know, we know our place in this thing when it comes to Jesus. And even Paul is doing some incredible work through Jesus, but you jabronis have no power or authority over us. You have no ground to tell us to do anything. And the next thing these guys know, they're walking out of the house naked and covered in blood. So you tell me who won this fight. Uh, Matt Chandler says in preaching this text, he says, If you started a, a fight wearing pants, and when the fight was over, you were no longer wearing pants, you lost that fight. <laughs> and that's these guys. Like They were utterly humiliated because they invoked the name of Jesus for their own gain, for their own reasons, for their own purposes. And there's some application in this for us, church. Jesus' name is to be worshipped and adored and not used for our ends. 
All right? Verse 17 shows us another, another purpose of the name of Jesus in this text. It says, and this became known, this, this whooping these boys got became known to the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled, praised. Again, church, I want to point us back to this idea of applying this as a church. You can apply this individually. Think about your own life. Think about your family. But I want us to think about it as a church, too. What are we known for? What's our identity? It must be. It must be that we're worshipers of Jesus. That we extol the name of Christ above all else. That his name is to be exalted and praised above anything else that might unite us or that we might have in common. If not, we run the risk of being no better than these seven sons. Right? These seven sons of Sceva. That that they knew something about the name of Jesus. They thought it might bring them something. But they didn't serve him. They didn't worship him. They didn't extol his name above all else. That's the risk we run when we try to when we try to do ministry even even good things disassociated from the worship of Jesus in our own hearts, right? If we're just limping through it, if we're just faking through it and and then and then trying to serve Christ, we're no better than these guys. That we'll just do a charity event and tag the name of Jesus onto it. Or that we'll serve our neighbors by meeting physical needs and just tag the name of Jesus onto it. Or we'll be a good little family raising moral little humans and we'll tag the name of Jesus onto it or put the cross on the front door. It's no different than these guys. Are we first and foremost worshipers of the name of Jesus Christ? That in our hearts, our desire, our affections, our loves are are incredibly cross and Christ-centered. And everything that we do flows from that worship that's already taking place in our hearts. Or are we simply wanting to tap into the name for what we can get or because we feel like we probably should? Maybe we've been raised in church or raised in a religious culture, and this is just what people do. Fourthly, this sort of change comes in a community and in a heart as people get real about renouncing their sin. The fourth thing we see is this change happens, this sort of thing happens when people get real about renouncing their sin. Look at verse 18. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to be 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. There's a temptation for us, church, um, for us to lament, for us to mourn and, and grieve the lostness and depravity out there like in the world around us, that, that we would beg God to come and do a work in our land because of the darkness that surrounds us, that the brokenness of our culture, the brokenness of our systems that are in place, whether it be government, whether it be uh, social systems, the sinfulness and lostness of our culture. And there's this, there's, this, there's this temptation that our hearts would always go there. But don't miss this, church. Who did Paul say came confessing and divulging their practices? Look at verse 18 again with me. Many of those who were now believers, believers came confessing and divulging their practices. It's clear to me in the text that maybe for the first time ever, these Ephesian believers, these new baby Christians, were realizing that their newfound faith in Christ and their continued participation in magic and the occult are incompatible. They don't make sense together. They can't go together. You can't have Jesus and this stuff that you were addicted to, that you were uh, involved in, that were sinful practices. And so what do they do? They come forward with their junk and they burn it. And don't miss this, they burn it in the sight of all, (laughs) right? This is the normal process for someone who gives their life to Jesus. 
right? That, that they would come and, and, and give everything that is not compatible with being a Christian, following Christ, to Christ as sacrifice to him. I don't want this junk anymore. When we become born again, that process of growth that we go through, where the Spirit comes and shapes us in the image of Christ, and as this happens, as we get formed into the image of Christ, we become aware of stuff in our own hearts that we were not even aware of, that, that were sins, that were temptations, that didn't square with the life that Jesus called us to. And as we become aware of those things by the Holy Spirit, that's what the Holy Spirit does, points those things out to us. As we become aware of them, we give them over and say, God, I don't want them anymore. God, if they're not okay with you, if those things are, are, uh, are, are, are if my priorities are out of whack and I'm even, even serving good and, and, and gifts that you've given me, good things ahead of you, I, I don't want that to be something that I would worship ahead of you. Note, too, that they burned these books. It doesn't say that they gave them away or, or sold them. They didn't want that, that stuff to spread and that poison to have more impact on the culture. They wanted the truth of Jesus to spread and have an impact on the culture. And so they burned it. And this was a costly thing, church. Some scholars suggest thousands of dollars by today's standards. Some scholars would say millions of dollars by today's standards. I don't, I don't think that's the point. The point is that this was a radical break from those practices, a, a severing of those things. Right? Jesus says, if it offends you, cut it off, pluck it out. This is that. This is, let's do away with it, and it's going to cost us. It's going to cost us dearly. There's like financial sacrifice and cost that's involved here. Well, why would they do that? Because they had new affections. They had a new love, and those things didn't matter anymore. And it didn't matter they were going to lose financially because they gave them up. It demonstrated that Jesus was more important to them than anything that they may lose in the dumpster fire. I think spiritually, church family, we need a dumpster fire. Maybe even physically, I'm not sure, but we need those kind of fires. That, that church, we would say, what, what would it look like if I embrace this? If, if I pray, genuinely pray today, God, would you convict me of sin, of places where I've wandered from you, and anything that you convict me of today, I'm committing today to, to cut it out of my life, whatever it costs. As we confess, that we, would, that we would be genuine about that. And think about how differently it looks in the church today, that this idea of they, they did this, they burned these things in the sight of all. I think it looks so different today. We, we confess. When we confess, it's often private, right? Those are our personal sins. We even have names for them like that. Those are personal sins. And so we confess these things privately. And we've over-privatized repentance and confession. And it's, and it's at, a, at a severe loss to us, church. I mean, think about what we lose when we do that. First, we have no accountability, right? Think about the accountability these guys have when they come and throw this junk that they had, these books they had, into this fire in front of the, the whole church, the whole community. Right? There's some accountability that comes with that. I'm giving this stuff over. If you see me dabbling with it again, you have the right to come and call me out. Right? That's what accountability looks like. We've lost that. In, in, this, in this over-privatized, like my repentance, my confession happens in my prayer closet and I don't let anybody know about it. We lose that. Second, we rob others the joy of getting to see Christ work in our hearts such that he would purge sin from our lives. Think about the joy that it would bring to a brother and sister in Christ when they see you getting real about repentance and confession and giving your life to Jesus more and more every day as you follow him. That should invoke joy in other believers, and we rob them of that. Thirdly, I think we remove this example, right? When we privatize it and we make it only about us and in our personal times with the Lord, we miss out the opportunity that God would maybe use that to convict someone else of something they're holding on to. They see you come and burn that junk. They're like, man, I, I have stuff like that in my life. And the Holy Spirit could use it to convict them. 
And so all of the, like, I think we just trend, our culture trends the other way so hard that we make everything individualistic. And I think there's some pushback for us in the text here, church. Where is public confession? Where is confession in growth groups and small groups and D groups? That, and not this kind of thing where like, oh, well, I've, I've got a surgery on my foot coming up next week. Sure, we should be praying about those sorts of things. But let's, let's do business in our hearts with one another. Like, hey, here's where I'm struggling. My heart is sinful, and I need you to know about it because I want you to hold me accountable. Like, I've got to get this out of my heart by the help of the Holy Spirit. Would you be a brother that would hold me to it? I think that's what's happening here. And it's why the text clearly points out they did it in the sight of all. I've been praying for us, church family, this week that this would be the norm and not the exception. That we would live in community in such a way that this, this, is, this is actually happening. That we would confess sin to one another. So what's God dealing with you about today? Just, just to ask some, some questions of us. What needs to be thrown into the fire? Physically? <laughs> Maybe. But at least spiritually, something that you would say, the Lord is, Lord is dealing with me on this, and I just need to confess it before him today. Maybe to a brother or sister, you need to confess it so that it's, a, it's an accountability thing. What's he placing on your heart right now, even as we speak, that, that may be a sin in your life that, that you're dealing with? Let me encourage you, share it with a brother or sister. Share it with somebody in growth group or in Sunday school this week. The Holy Spirit brings something to your heart and mind right now. Don't quench the Holy Spirit by just being disobedient and sweeping it under the rug. That's what happens when we, uh, when we shove those things under the rug. The Holy Spirit begins to quit dealing with us about them. And we go hard to them. And we go cold to the Lord as it concerns that thing. So I remind you where we've been this morning. Sort of recap for us our time in Ephesus. We see these signs, evidences, conditions of God bringing life to a place through revival, through awakening. And here's what it looks like. Number one, God's word being unleashed to do its work. Number two, God demonstrating his power. Here he did it through some miracles. He may do it through miracles today, but he definitely does it through his word and through other believers, right? That's the miracle of new birth that we see around us as a community of faith. And then we see it through, uh, through, through, through the people worshiping G- the name of Jesus and people getting real about renouncing their sin. There's a fifth, though, and one final thing we see in the text. It's number five. The gospel has an impact on the society around us. When these other four are happening, when these other four conditions in our church and in our hearts are happening and our loves are being reoriented, then number five happens, too. It has an impact on the world around us, the society around us. And that's the picture we see in these last verses. Uh, Paul's, the end of chapter 19 is the last recorded event that we have in Paul's time in Ephesus. And it's clear what happens. Enough people begin to have their hearts changed that it begins to make an impact on the culture. Look at verse 23. It says, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. So in other words, a big disturbance. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. So these disturbances start with Demetrius. He's a, he's a craftsman, and these silversmiths would make replicas of this temple of Artemis, and people would purchase those, sort of like we purchase souvenirs of the, of the Statue of Liberty or if we went to New York or those sorts of things, little, little figurines. But these folks would purchase these, and they would even go home and put them on their home altar so that they could worship Artemis even in the, the comforts of their home. And so that's what's going on here. He's selling these little idols, and he's furious because business is starting to take a hit. Why? Because God is changing so many hearts, and no one wants to buy his little idols in them anymore. And so he gathers an audience, verse 25, says he gathers together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. 
And there is a danger that not only this trade of ours may come to come into dis, uh, disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. So here's this guy's argument, Demetrius' argument. He says, Paul is preaching, and that, that preaching is threatening our, our business, our livelihood, our wealth. And Paul's misleading people by proclaiming that the gods have uh, no power, that the gods made with human hands aren't really gods, that his God is the only God, which should really tick you off because not only is it going to threaten our livelihood, but it it threatens to rob our world-renowned goddess Artemis. It would take attention from her. And this is sort of a battle cry for Demetrius. He's rallying the folks. It's meant to stir their emotions. He's saying to to mess with Artemis is to mess with the Ephesians. What are you going to do about it? He's, he's, he's wanting to start something here. And so what happens? Well, what happens when people's idols are threatened today? Either they submit to Jesus and turn to Jesus, which is what they should do, or they get angry. <laughs> and that's what happens. Look at verse 28. And when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristocrat. Uh, Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the uh, Asiarchs uh, who were friends of his sent to him and, and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion. And most of them did not even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexandra, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexandra, motioning with his hands, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So you can see from this text, there is clear pandemonium. (laughs) They couldn't uh, get Paul, and so what they did was get the next next best thing, his companions. And they bring these uh, two folks into the amphitheater. There in Ephesus, which would have seated 24,000 people, not saying that many people were there. That's how big the, the, the place is. And Paul tries to enter. He goes to try to speak on their behalf, but his friends plead with him, hey, don't, don't do that. Don't go into this mob. And the scene is one of total chaos. There's shouting. One group shouts one thing. The other group shouts something completely different. And then the text clears us, uh, clearly tells us that there were some that they weren't even sure why they were there. They got drugged to this event, and they don't even know, know what's going on. And in the midst of all of that, the confusion continues in verse 33 when Alexander is put forward by the Jews. Not sure why the Jews put somebody forward here. Uh, it, is, it isn't even about them. Some commentaries speculate that he was offered up by the Jews maybe to just clear up the, the, you know, the muddy water here. Like, hey, this is another group. This is not the Jews in the synagogue. This is Christians. So your, your beef here is with them. You can go on about your idols to, to Artemis and have all that. The Jews are okay with that. Uh, this is those other guys, those Christians. We're not sure. Either way, though, before he can even begin his speech, the Ephesians erupt into their chant, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. You can just imagine this being chanted over and over. And they're not even really sure why. And apparently there's been this chaos and this confusion, and, uh, and it's about to give way to violence and rioting. And God uses a city clerk uh, to prevent that ordeal from getting nasty. Look at verse 35 with me. It says, when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. 
For you have brought these men here who were neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. So let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we, are, for we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Here's what the clerk's basically saying. The worship of Artemis is, is not in jeopardy. These Christians aren't, are, they're, not, they're not being violent. They're not trying to cause a riot or a mob. This Christianity thing is no threat to you Ephesians. No earthly movement. This is kind of the idea. No earthly movement could possibly threaten one whose image dropped from the heavens, right? <laughs> then he points out the, the legal implications of this gathering. These two Christians that you've seized are not guilty. They've done nothing. But if there is anyone guilty, it's you Ephesians who are running the risk of, of being charged with an unlawful assembly. And so the assembly is quickly dismissed and the uproar ceases. So what do we learn here, church, real quickly as we, as we attempt to apply this? That this mob, this uproar in Ephesus shows us that as we advance the kingdom of Jesus here on earth, one, we do it without violence or weapons or by force. Like that's not the, the method. That's not the strategy that they had. That has been attempted in Christendom and it's terrible. It's ugly and it's filthy. But when we do it, we do it by the preaching of the word. We do it as the, the gospel is shared and as people are, are giving their lives to Jesus and their loves are, are, are changed and reoriented. And as a result, sin and idolatry is dismissed and thrown into the fire. And by the help of the Holy Spirit, the society feels that impact. Here's the other thing we learned from that, though, church family. When that begins to happen, we can trust that it's going to meet opposition. That the, 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 the devil and the world do not like that to happen. And so as we do it, we do it with confidence. And we do it completely uh, trusting upon the Lord. Our dependence is upon him. That we continue in this ministry he's called us to, even when times get incredibly difficult. And we don't underestimate the power of the gospel in the world today. We keep exalting Jesus. We keep sharing in our community as Jesus convicts hearts and changes lives. I want to end with this illustration, church family. I've, I've shared this before at Poplar Spring, and so it'll sound familiar to some of you, but I think it is a really good picture, a really good image and illustration to describe the way that these, these affections begin to shift and change. In Ephesus and in our hearts when we uh, come to the Lord Christ, shortly after World War I ceased, Dr. Donald Barnhouse, a Presbyterian pastor and writer, visited the battlefields of Belgium. And he went there to see the, the great sights of German retreat as the war ended and the, the Germans retreated. Miles of, of roads lined with artillery and tanks and trucks and war equipment that was just abandoned when the war ended and the battlefields were, were uh, left in haste. Dr. Barnhouse describes the day as being a beautiful spring day. The sun was out, it was shining, it was warm, and he was walking along these roads, examining these war vehicles. He, he, as he walked, he noted that, uh, that leaves were falling. Leaves were falling from these huge trees that were arched over the road, and one leaf in particular fell and, and hung up in his shirt pocket. And so he pulled it out, and he, and he examined it, and as he was looking at it and touching it, it, it disintegrated in his hands. These leaves were, uh, were, uh, were falling, and, and so many of them were falling, and yet it was puzzling to him because it wasn't autumn. It wasn't fall. It was spring. And there, were, there was no wind to blow these leaves off. These leaves had just simply outlived autumn and outlived winter, and yet now they're falling with seemingly no cause. And then he realized 
He, he realized that the most powerful force of all was causing these leaves to fall, and that was spring. And that, that, that the sap was beginning to run, and buds were beginning to push up from within, and deep down within the dark soil, uh, life was being taken into the tree and through the roots and up through the trunk and into the limbs and out through the twigs of this tree. And as it did it, it expelled every bit of deadness that still remained from the previous year. And the Scottish preacher states this. He says, what he witnessed was an expulsive power of new affection. I think this is what we see in the text, church family. When we've experienced this new affection, when we've repented of our sins and trusted in Christ, our loves begin to change and shift. And it's even, it's undescribable for someone that's not experienced it, right? You, you, you can't explain to someone how from one day to the next you went from, from loving something to hating something because God showed you that it was sin. And so here's where I want to leave us with, church family. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced a change in your affections, in your loves? Maybe you're here today and you've never, never experienced that. You've never experienced God changing your heart and your desires. And today, would you just come to him? Would you come and give your life to him and repent of your sins and trust Christ? Let's respond together to the text we've heard. Let's pray together. I'm going to lead us in a, a different time of response this morning. Um, here's, here's the invitation to you as we respond to the, to the word. We're getting ready to, to receive communion, an opportunity that we have to see a, a visible picture of the gospel that's changed our hearts, reoriented our loves. We get to experience that today, today around the table of the Lord. But before that, I want to call us to a time of response, a time of repentance, and I want to call us to this altar. Now, I want to be real clear. There's nothing super spiritual about this step down here, it's just wood and carpet. <laughs> not, not even special wood and carpet, just wood and carpet. Really old wood, a little bit newer carpet, but still just wood and carpet. But here's what is special. Here's what is different. There is a, uh, something that the Lord does in our hearts when we humble ourselves and get on our knees and our face before the Lord and just ask the Lord to do business in our heart, to work in only the way that His Holy Spirit can work in our hearts so I want to call you, if, you, if, if the Lord leads, if, if the Lord uh, puts that on your heart to do, to come and, and get on your knees before the Lord and do a couple things. One, ask him to do what's happening in this text. Lord, would you begin to shift my heart? Would you change my heart? Would you convict me of sin? And here's the other thing. Maybe you need to get a brother or sister and go and pray with them just so that there's some accountability so they can hear you confess the things that the Lord's put on your heart. Here's the other thing I want you to do as you come and respond to the word. Prepare your heart for this table. If there's, if there's a sin between you or a brother or a sister, go and make that right. Go and confess to them. Ask for forgiveness. Be reconciled with your brother and sister that you wouldn't take this table wrongly. And you come and do business with the Lord. Ask him to prepare your heart for receiving this time of communion. Let me pray for us. Michael and, and Sammy are going to introduce a newer song to us as we respond to the Lord uh, through a time of repentance and prayer. Let's pray together.